guys. Thanks for tuning in to Just the Basics again. I'm Tommy Bowles. I'm Matt. And we're keeping the beat for you once a week. This week, uh, we're going to finish up our series on music theory. It's crazy. So this is episode seven of this. It's kind of hard to believe that we've done that many episodes just on music theory. I hope you guys aren't tired of it. <laughs> um, but anyways, so this last one here, we're, we're calling this one the extra 10%. So it's all the little things that kind of finish up your your concepts of music theory and get you over the edge. This is what pushes you to actually having a complete performance instead of just having little tidbits of information here and there that don't really make a whole lot of sense together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not really so much theoretical as it is just practical. You know, how do you actually take all this stuff and put it together? So, I mean, basically what we're doing is we're taking, you know, your scales and key signatures, your triads, your time signatures, harmony, the national numbers, all that stuff, and turning it into an actual song. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> So you could play the notes, but can you play the notes? Can you do more than just talk about them? <laughs> right. Now you so know that's you guys an sit- A, but now do it right. <laughs> right. So you guys sitting on the other side of the, the mics here on the headphones, you probably don't know if we can actually play what we're talking about either, but trust us, we can. <laughs> At least I can. Oh, gosh. Hey, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. I don't know. Maybe your fingers fell off. Maybe. I, I don't know. They look like they're still there, but you never know. <laughs> There's a lot of humidity in Florida. Maybe you you got rusty. Yeah, yeah. The humidity did it. At least it, it's not like ice where I can't move them anymore. <laughs> that was always the worst. You know, when you go to play a gig and your hands are cold? Oh, my gosh. Terrible. Yeah, I would go and and like run my hands under hot water for a few minutes just to be able to play because I, I couldn't move my fingers. It felt terrible. But you can't play with gloves. That's sure some bass players do but um you need the those uh the special gloves well like a lot of ba- some bass players do it now just because scott divine does it the guy from right. scott's bass lessons but he actually has a real reason why he does it not just because he thinks they look cool yeah he has those uh um the supporting gloves that are it's not just like a mitten that he wears <laughs> yeah he has some sort of neurological thing that causes hands to shake, so the gloves stabilize, make it somehow his hands stop shaking when he wears the gloves. I don't know. I don't really understand it, but it works for him. So, yeah, but gloves, I don't know. I've tried playing with gloves, and it just feels too wrong. I, I don't know how people do it. Nah, I wouldn't know. But at least for Scott, it does help him form the notes. Oh, gosh. Segways. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that brings us to our first topics, uh, form. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh. So form is your roadmap to a song. It's the structure that keeps everybody together. Uh, If you Mm -hmm. don't know the form, everybody gets lost. It becomes a train wreck. People start yelling at each other, throwing symbols, crashing down chairs, you know, the works. (laughs) (laughs) Your grandma dies. You never know. All sorts of crazy stuff. It's kind of like the whole step on the back, or step on the crack thing, breaking your mom's back. Don't mess up the yep. form or you'll meet Jason Bourne. I don't know. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> it doesn't really rhyme. <laughs> Quick thinking. That was, that was good. <laughs> I tried, right? <laughs> I don't know if Charlie Parker would I shouldn't have if uh, Jason Bourne threw that symbol. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Who was it that is, uh, it, legend has it that they threw a symbol at somebody? There was some, some jazz great that supposedly threw a symbol at somebody else in the band because they got mad at him for something. I don't remember who threw it, but I think it was at Charlie Parker. I think you're right. I think they chucked it at Charlie Parker. I, I think it was that. one of the um the older, well, obviously, one of the uh, older big band um conductors, but I'm, I don't remember which one. I can't remember either. You could probably look it up pretty yeah. quick on Google, but it, anyway. Form. Yeah, um, I I don't know about you, Matt, but when to me when people mess up the form, that is more frustrating than anything else that people could make mistakes on. Like, I yeah, yeah. I can get over missing chords. I can get over playing wrong notes, kind of speeding up and slowing down. I can deal with that. But 
messing up the form is really like that's one of my pet peeves. And everybody yeah. does it at certain times. I know I've done it before. Matt, you've done it before. Everybody messes up the form at some point, but or just when you're playing old. Well, what, actually, getting lost is different than messing right. it up. <laughs> well, yeah, because you can get lost but still know where you're at in the form, just not know, okay, wait, what chord was I supposed to be playing right there? And that's, right, right. I mean, it still is, obviously it shouldn't happen, but it's more, it's more understandable than flat out not knowing what the form of the song is. Yeah. Especially. If you just have no idea where to jump to when it went to a different part of the form, then mm-hmm. shame on you. That's, that's it, well, your key to getting back on the beat. <laughs> yeah, and, and most music nowadays, you feel the form more so than you count it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you can just know when you're at the beginning of the, of the head again. It's really easy to figure out. Um, in, the, in the jazz world, there are a couple of different re- forms that are really popular, and it's basically these couple that people use over and over and over again. Uh, the first one is probably the most popular one. It's that AABA form. Mm-hmm. So songs that use that would be like Have You Met Miss Jones or Honeysuckle Rose. Uh, Black Orpheus is another one. A Night in Tunisia is another one. Uh, should we go on? I mean, you could list AABA forms for days and not run out of them. So Yeah, I think it's kind of it for the classical people. This is... Um, kind of identical to ternary ABA. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's a secondary term for when it's AABA. I don't recall what it is because it's been forever since I've used that sort of a thing. But the ternary is it feels natural. It has your your little home in A, a departure in B with a return to the home in A, and um, right. So that went into jazz compositions and is still kind of the standard for most form writing in general in as like a basic concept of it and you'll just hear it in tons and tons and tons and tons of songs even if you take a grand scheme like a song that lasts a long 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 while a 10 minute song and you break the whole thing down then there's a good chance you're still going to find an ABA form in there in some way. Sometimes right. you have to press the issue a little bit, but that's Yeah, uh, you're right. And so by a so like AABA basically you're having a phrase and then you repeat the phrase. And then like Matt said you go away from home and you go play the B and you go back to that first phrase. It's super common and it's really easy to follow and Generally, in jazz, these forms are about thir- or 32 bars. So you have an 8-bar phrase for the A section, and then you repeat it, making a 16. An 8-bar B section to get you 24, then another 8-bar A. Mm-hmm. You know, jazz wouldn't get very far without that form, because it's so so common. It's, it's all over the place. So uh, the next one, then, is the, uh, the ABAC form, which is very similar it's kind of like verse, chorus, verse, bridge, I guess you could say, if you wanted to compare it to a modern thing. Songs like that are all the things that you are and the melody from Another Night in Tunisia or A Night in Tunisia, depending on who you ask. <laughs> it's real. Those are more complicated in a way because they have more content, but it's not like a ton of content. I think um, in all the things you are, the C section you could also refer to as a prime, but you could. Yeah. That's, that's getting a bit confusing and just calling it C works fine. But I do remember from back in the day when it's basically the a section with slight changes, then you refer to it as, um, as a prime because there's some differences, but the basic, um, structure of the melody and harmony is fairly similar to a, and a lot of the time, mm-hmm. that's exactly what it does is it's like the final section where it's pretty much A, but we're wrapping things up in the form. So we're using some slight differences to conclude the song. And uh, obviously, with all the things you are, you 
have more of a C just because it's going to go through again and again and again and again and again, especially because it's a really big popular standard and people are going to play that all night long. So calling it C is more appropriate, but the classical person would say prime because they want to sound like Transformers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And jazzers would call it ABAC as well because you're to differentiate it more because you have the A-A-B-A, but in this form, you don't repeat the A twice in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So instead of doing A-B-A-A, A-B-A-C, you know, or A-B-A-A prime, you know, A-B-A-C is just easier to say. Makes more sense yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's... No, this form, I feel like it's trickier for for people to understand, which it really shouldn't be, but... I've seen more people get lost in ABAC forms than AABA forms mm-hmm. just because there's another phrase that they forget about. And people get so used to repeating that A section that they try to do it again in the beginning and then you end up with an extra eight bars and you have a 40-bar phrase instead of 32. Then it's really yeah. weird. <laughs> I think a lot of uh, Latin tunes have these more alternative forms that right. really trip up some people and um i think it definitely messes with singers but i mean everything messes with singers <laughs> the poor oh singers they never know where they are <laughs> it should be the easiest for them in my opinion but it's just a trend that i've seen that they always get lost somehow well in the jazz world i find it tends to happen while people are soloing I I think the only reason for that is not because they can't do it. I just think it's a lot of them get distracted. Oh, yeah. And they're not listening. They don't have to play anything in that part. So if they're not at a piano or playing a guitar or something, then naturally they might, you know, let their mind wander a little bit. And then suddenly they realize, uh uh-oh. Like, oh, man, I missed where they are. Yeah. Right, right. (laughs) So it, it totally makes sense to me. It's just fun to pick on them because... They, uh, they're at a weak spot. Get them while they're down. They're the yeah. ones that are in the spotlight. Bring them out of it. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> well, and it seems to be pretty common. I mean, we've worked with a lot of vocalists that have missed entrances during after solo sections. Oh, and, yeah. and I mean, plus it's kind of funny as long as they're you know a good sport. Then yeah, and as long as everybody else in the band is paying attention and you can cover for it, mm-hmm. then it's fine. You know, not that you want to do that all the time, because I know we've gotten stuck in loops before where we're like, hello, look at us, please, because we're trying to <laughs> set this up for you. You set it up about five times before they're like, oh, yeah, it's my turn. You yeah. guys were sounding so nice. I forgot that I was in the band. <laughs> well, that, that that right there is the problem, though, forgetting that you're in the band. Uh, it's, you know, oh, singers yeah. Oh, yeah. like like Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughn. They were part of the band. Like, you know, they they treated them their vo- their voices as instruments and mm-hmm. they would they'd scat and solo like everybody else would and they were they didn't see themselves just as a singer like a lot of singers do yeah they would genuinely interact with the band that right. was playing with them and not just have the band be their um musical backup right and even sinatra to a point was more a part of the band than a lot of singers are I mean, he oh, yeah. definitely, you know, I would say in his situation, the band was definitely his backup for him. But yeah. at the same time, he still, he, I mean, he was still on top of things, involved in everything. It's not like he just sang his little part and then walked off the stage and then came back when it was time for him to sing again. He actually would be right, part right. of it. He, he definitely, it was very clear that he heard what the band was doing. And even though it was... Um, very specifically arranged around his singing and Mm -hmm. the uh the form like we're talking about was very clear and had um interesting rhythmic stabs and uh growth in dynamics things like that and it all worked together and uh like i said very well arranged there was still a very clear interaction like he his little dances he it was very clear that he knew where the band was, even in that big band context where it is an arranged thing. It's not as improvised as other um, scenarios. Right. Which almost makes it easier, though, the fact that it was an arranged thing because it was arranged to make it easy to know where you were. 
It's yeah. not like you have somebody wailing up there that you're like, huh, he's playing outside of the key signature now. Okay, now he's back in. Oh, wait, he's playing at a different time than everybody else. Oh, I, it's, I missed my entrance. Dang. You know, it's, it's a little bit easier when it's arranged to make it easy to follow. But yeah. that's besides the point. <laughs> um, the next form is the very simple 12-bar blues. I don't think we really need to discuss that much. I think we've talked about it before anyway. Yeah, so it's real straightforward. Uh, if you don't know what a 12-bar blues is, listen to B.B. King, and after about 30 seconds, you'll get it. <laughs> you know, or old, old big bands. I mean, most of jazz, pretty much everyone will have a 12-bar blues on the record somewhere, and it's right. pretty much just A, 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 A. It's the Canadian form. Yeah, <laughs> Now, I have heard some people call it an AAB form, which I personally disagree with. I th- I can see how you can make the argument that 12-bar blues could be AAB, but I don't I don't think that it's a strong argument. Poo-poo on that. Yeah, it only makes sense <laughs> for the melody, but the chords are so... The chords change from each A section that it's a different chord structure. But not only that, it's just such a short phrase that I don't know how... I wouldn't want to break that up into anything smaller. No, like it's already I mean, twelve measures. Why break it up into four measure segments? That's just too much. Yeah, that's that's a little bit too torn down. It it would have to be a real doggone slow blues with some genuine differences in what's happening. And usually, a twelve bar is written, you know, pretty doggone straightforward in what the melody is, and it's usually repetitive, especially riff tunes. I mean. Tell the C-Jam Blues that that's an AAB. I think Count Basie would just kind of give you a a funky look and keep playing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, you know. But that brings us to the next one, AAB, the real version of AAB. So I really, I, okay, AAB form is, it sounds really good, but it infuriates me because Every single time we've played a tune that's AAB, at least one person messes it up almost every time through mm-hmm. because they want to play AABA because they're not paying attention to what's going on. And so then you have somebody playing an A section at the same time as the B section is happening. And it just, it's very frustrating, uh, especially on the song, Song for My Father by Horace Silver. That's one of my favorite songs ever. I love that song. And every time that we play it, somebody messes up the form. And it just mm-hmm. breaks my heart. <laughs> yeah, I think the which it's kind of ironic because a, a lot of the time when you're playing AABA in a uh, fairly repetitive tune like "So What," the tendency is to get lost after the last A by only playing the first A and then jumping into B, forgetting that there's two A's. Mm-hmm. at the start of the form. So it's kind of funny that now that you've eliminated that last A, that people they still, still get lost. <laughs> that they, that now point. you're giving them what those people want and they still don't want yeah, that. <laughs> that's true. And Song for My Father is one that we've gotten stuck in loops on that, like, like mm-hmm. serious loops where somebody's soloing and they don't stop. And then they don't know where they are anymore. And they're like, "Uh oh, I'm still going, but I don't know where this form stops. And then you're trying to tell them, but they don't look up because they're staring at their sheet music trying to figure out where they are. Which is odd because I think, it, at least for that song specifically, maybe not for other AABs, but that harmonically, it's very clear. Um, yeah, because the B section starts a whole step around. lower than the, yeah. than the A section. Yeah, it's pretty simple to hear. So that's that's one of those... Moments where as you grow in improvisational music that you have to pay attention to what the song actually sounds like and listening to people around you, even when you're soloing. Don't just try to Definitely. keep track of where you are by looking at your music. People around you could be getting lost. They might have accidentally mm-hmm. skipped the line. They might have messed up the form. So if you listen to the people around you, then that that will help with issues with the form just because you'll be able to hear where they are if they mess up and you can 
you can right. easily fix mistakes like that. It's it's not the end of the world. It can be frustrating if you let it get to you, but as long as you're listening and you know what they did and then calmly fix it, there won't be any problem mm-hmm. and no one will really notice. People aren't aren't really um, out there in your audience that are breaking down every single moment and keeping track of the whole thing and they know exactly where the form is. Honestly, they will let that go by, especially in a solo. They will lose track of the form fairly quickly. And then if you go back to the melody, well, if you mess up the form of the melody, shame on you because that's silly. It's not a difficult melody. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I found too, like, especially in the jazz context, now it's not like this for every style of music, but in jazz, people normally aren't really listening to you. Like they're there and they smile and they say, yeah, I like jazz. It's awesome. And in reality, they have no idea what's going on and they don't care to know. It's a very meditative audience. Yeah. So it, it depends on the If you're playing for other players, they'll, they'll, they'll pay a little closer attention and be studying what you're doing. Usually right. though, they're appreciating what you're doing. So you might feel like people are sitting there judging you and they hear every mistake and they hear every time that your band messes up the form, blah, 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 blah. But really they're probably appreciating the heart that you're putting into it. And if you're a jerk about it or it's obvious that you're just, you know, you're not really that into it, then they'll become part of the just meditative audience that just kind of chill. And, Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that at least in our little jazz world, people are so much less judgmental than they are in the classical, uh, the classical world because they want a piece played exactly as people are trained to play it in their repertoire. And unless you make huge changes to it, and people know that you're one of those that will take fur release and swing it, then they want to hear it the way everybody plays it. Right. And in jazz, they want to hear how you play things and what you have to say with your instrument. So messing up the form, they would just assume that you meant to do it. <laughs> Maybe not necessarily, but yeah, that they'll give you the benefit of the doubt a lot of times. Right. Exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah, like cuz jazz is okay. I I'm not one of those guys that says jazz is no rules and it's just free-flowing or whatever because that's the farthest thing from the truth. I hate when people say that. But at the same time, it has a lot of freedom in it and it's about your create your personal expression. And that's part of what makes jazz so great. So mm-hmm. the people that want to change up a song or do it a little bit differently, jazz is the perfect world for that. Like a great example is uh, My Funny Valentine. Like, Typically, that's done as like that real slow ballad, you know, where they stretch it out a real long time and the vocalist doesn't really sing the notes in the right time, but still sings them before the phrase is over. And you get that real emotional thing behind it. Well, Matt and I decided we didn't really like that very much and decided to do it as a bossa nova. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. it was awesome and it was yeah. fun. Like, you speed it up a little bit and do it as a bossa nova, and man, it feels, it just feels so good. Mm -hmm. It's very well written to be a very dark sounding song, so when you get groovy with it, it just has a a deadliness to it. I don't know. There's just something about it. It just feels good. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, it's just really nice. So... That's the nice thing about jazz. And so, yeah, Matt's right. They, they kind of give you the benefit of the doubt a little bit, but still, don't mess the form up too much. <laughs> and like you said, there's not no there there isn't no rules in jazz. Right. We just like to master the rules and then experiment with breaking them. Exactly. So when people are like, "No, there's nothing to jazz. You just there are no rules. Do whatever you want." No, not really. Yeah, we just like to wrong. break the rules because we want to have fun. That's all. Yeah, like there's something we're trying to say, but the rules don't let us say it, so we just kind of mess yeah, it up a so little bit. So you just bit. push the envelope a little bit and do something different, because why not? Why not try? And just see what happens. Yeah. If it doesn't work, then hey, we'll go back to doing it the other way. But if it worked, yeah. then hey, you know, we got something cool going on. Although so, I don't know if like you really want to, uh, since we're talking about form... 
I wouldn't mess too too much so with the form of a standard, only no. because um, you would get into a bad habit for yourself. And say you go to a jam session, and they call "Have you met Miss Jones?" and you got used to playing it as a b b a and then a c original section, and you got so used to that that you forget the original form of how you, have you met Miss Jones then you've kind of sabotaged yourself in that regard. And I don't think a lot of jazz people want to hear that. I don't think that we really want you to go too far outside of the form. If you want to add like, you know, little original interludes after Mm -hmm. the last day section before the head, that happens all the time. That's interesting and fun. And that's jam session. Yeah, yeah, that's just not the environment for it. And you can just end up making a fool out of yourself, even if what you did sounds interesting and original and is good. Right. Yeah, exactly. So if if we go try to go beyond the jazz world a little bit, just because like Matt and I, you know, we're just so involved in that. That's what our lives have been for the past, you know, five years, six years that it's kind of hard for us to look past that. So if we're looking at the more pop world where most people reside musically. It's a little bit different as far as your form. So it's, you still have sections like a section, B section, C section, whatever, but they're kind of interchangeable to a point. So they call this verse chorus or verse chorus bridge, whatever. So you have your verse and your second verse just has a different lyric to it, the same melody. Uh, you have your chorus, sometimes you have a pre-chorus in there, and then your bridge, which is like kind of like a C section. So like uh, if your song is ABAC, that could be verse, chorus, verse, bridge. You know, you could look at it that way. It's um, it's really popular nowadays, and the reason I think it's popular is because it's you can build it off of loops and just drag and drop whatever makes sense to you. Yep. Because so much music now is built off of drum loops and piano loops and samples and stuff like that that you need to be able to drag and drop it in order to actually make that make those songs come alive. Mm-hmm. So I don't have any evident, real hard evidence behind that. That's just from what I've heard and what it sounds like to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that you'd necessarily need examples for that. That's just the way songs are written a lot of the time these days, and. Um, that's not necessarily a weakness. We're not saying that, oh, that sucks and this and music all music sucks now. We're not saying that. We're just saying that this is the methods that are used. Uh, worship music uses this a lot. They've mm-hmm. really gotten into using loops and such. Uh, a lot of popular music uses loops. And right. part of the reason that you do that is to an extent it can be cheaper. If you use a drum machine, then you didn't have to hire a drummer. You just had to be the one that wrote the drum part electronically and have a drum loop in your song. Boop. Right. It doesn't sound as authentic as a real drummer. It might not have the heart and soul of a real drummer, but you did it without having to pay a studio drummer. So, well, the other thing too is like if you're in the church world, for example, and you have your song based off of loops, you can actually sell those loops to churches to be able to use them. Precisely, yeah. So not only have you not had to pay the drummer to show up, now you still had to make the loops and everything, and that is still very time-consuming. But you know, now you can actually sell those loops with your click tracks built into them for, for churches to use. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know if, if bands are really selling them or if they're just giving them away through like CCLI and that sort of thing. I, I'm not really sure on that, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're selling them. I'm sure some do. Yeah, I'm sure that some artists do, but I, I'm pretty sure that there are quite a few out there that do just give them away. Yeah, like some I, of the really I would say that's probably like a 50-50. Like some would monetize it, and in my opinion, they they probably should. It's hard enough for a lot of musicians to make money off of their work. So yeah, you have they every right to, well. in my opinion. Yeah, you have every right to uh, monetize your own work, and especially with something like that because making a drum loop it it might sound simple but making a good one that actually sounds nice and feels good and isn't just your typical rock that that 
Then, yeah, you can grab that from Apple Loops and not have to pay for it. <laughs> I mean, you could beat that out on a keyboard in two seconds, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there, uh, you know, it's modern music is just going so much to that loop section, to the loops, that I think that's why that is such a popular form to use, the verse chorus form. And it's easily easily repeatable, and it's easy to move around in a song and just say, you know what? we want to sing that chorus again. Let's just do it. And Mm -hmm. it gives you a lot of flexibility because nobody's going to, if you sing an extra chorus, nobody's going to look at you like you're like, you got two heads where in a jazz jazz band setting, if you're playing heavy, Memphis Jones and you play a, a B B a people are going to look at you like, well, that was weird. What just happened? Yeah. But in popular music, if you play an extra chorus, nobody's really going to care about it. And honestly, like in, in jazz, when one part of the form is going to another, it's been composed harmonically to mm-hmm. go between those sections. So unless a section specifically loops within itself, a lot of the time, if you just repeat a section, it does not work harmonically and you would have had to do something different to actually get there. So if you take a B section and you you just say, let's play that again. No, no. Just wait yeah. until it comes back around to play it again because the notes and melodically and harmonically were written to go in and out of that section. And in typical popular music, usually they all end with a five going into a one of the next section or the bridge might start on a four, maybe. Right. Things like that. Things that are so simple that you can just loop them forever you can go where you feel like going. There's a lot of freedom in your movement because harmonically it it all connects. Well, and, in and jazz uses other. really strong cadences to move you from one section to the other. Like, yeah. like Have You Met Miss Jones, the end of the second A section has a big, you're in the key of F and you have a big 2-5-1 to B flat, which is how you start your your bridge. So... That two five one is such a strong cadence that you couldn't do that. You couldn't play, you know, C minor F seven, then F major seven. It's gonna be like, what the heck did you just do? You know, it's not gonna make any sense. And then the end of the bridge section, you're in G flat, and then you have a big two five one to F. So if you are playing in G flat, then you hit the G minor, then the C seven. You can't go to B flat major seven after that to repeat the bridge. It just doesn't make any sense. So because you're you're modulating, uh, you're changing keys throughout it. You're well tonicizing. You're changing tonics. You're not actually changing keys, uh, and those cadences are so strong that it just makes sense. Where in popular music, you know, even if you don't end on a five chord, even if you end on a three minor chord for some strange reason, you could easily bring that almost anywhere in your. You could bring that anywhere in your key and have it sound fine. It's not like you end with a big two five one mm-hmm. or a four five one. Even if it is a four five one, you could go four five six and make it a deceptive cadence and be fine. You know, it's not as like you're using all the extensions and everything. So the last uh, form that I want to throw in here is a through composed. So this one here, you don't really see all that often. I feel like most of the time that you see it is going to be in um, orchestral sorts of things or film scores or large ensemble uh, stuff. Yeah, or a commissioned piece that's written for a specific thing. Mm-hmm. Uh Basically, through compose means it doesn't repeat anything. So you start at the beginning, you end at the end, and everything in the middle is all unique material. Yep. So those songs, you know, they're, they're it can be harder to learn because you don't have any repeating sections. But they're not stuff that you're going to sit out and play with with a jazz band and throw a bunch of improvised solos over. Right. Yeah. And if you do some, play one, you're going to play it directly as written. Some pieces on a big band do use through compose, but mm-hmm. it's usually very specialized pieces. And the the fact that the definition itself says doesn't repeat means it pretty much doesn't exist for a big right. band. But you can also make the argument that if you bend that definition to it still goes from beginning to end and it's not like one simple form that repeats itself like there might be repeats within the form in a certain section and then it goes to the end then that you could call it 
quote-unquote through compose, and it's more so that the notation is simplified so that you don't have 10 pages. But right. if you go by definition, then that's not truly through composed. Right. A lot of um, choral pieces are through composed. That's true. That's true. A lot of choral pieces are. There's there's one other form I just thought of that I can't remember the name of it. Um, but it would be like A, B, A, C, A, B, A. What is that called? Abacaba? <laughs> Abacadabra. I, <laughs> I mean, no, no, seriously, I did call it Abacaba. I think it's called Rondo. Rondo, that's what it was. Yeah. And I just so, remembered it because Abacaba. Yeah, yeah. And there's like three-part Rondos, five-part Rondos, seven-part Rondos. Mm-hmm. So basically you're playing your your home base A section in between every unique section. So that's not all that popular nowadays. You don't hear it much, but it's kind of cool. It's definitely more uh, no, more common in the classical realm. Yeah. Uh, you could make the argument, though, if your song goes verse, chorus, verse, bridge, verse, chorus, verse, that it yeah. would be a rondo form. You could make that argument. Yeah, that would be a, a bit odd. I think you'd maybe have to go chorus, verse, chorus, bridge. Yeah. To make it chorus, make sense, verse, which is something that you might hear, but mm-hmm. just depends. 10,000 reasons might technically have some sort of abacaba. (laughs) Yeah, it's possible. So anyways, I just thought of that one. That wasn't in our notes, but it's it's kind of a funny one. All right, so the next thing we're talking about, so again, we're talking about the extra 10%, the things that just finish off your piece. Next thing is your dynamics. So Matt already alluded to this earlier. Uh, Dynamics really make your piece. They make or break it. Especially the performance side of it. Exactly. So on a record, you only can have so much of a dynamic range in a recording because sure. you, know, like, you know, when you're watching TV and they start whispering and you turn the volume up and then all of a sudden like gunfire erupts and you're like, what the heck? And you turn the volume back down and it's like drives you nuts. Like the, the TV show Arrow, I have a hard time watching that because it gets so quiet that I have to turn the volume up. And then next thing you know, something there's an explosion or something. I'm like, what in the world are you trying to wake my neighbors up? Like, what the heck? Right. It's, you know, so... In a recording, you can only have so much dynamic range, but there are ways that you can do it without just playing louder and softer. So mm-hmm. uh, the way I like to look at it is if you play the whole song loud, it's just going to get annoying. After a while, people are just going to be like, okay, we get it. You can play loud. You like your big amps. Okay, stop. <laughs> but if you play the whole thing too quiet, it's like, oh my gosh, put me to sleep, why don't you? You, know, you just get super boring. Mm-hmm. So there's two ways that you can change your dynamic structure of it. One of them, of course, is just playing louder and softer. Ooh, great idea, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, the other one is better for better for use in recording studios, in my opinion. That's by layering your music. So by layering, I mean like start out by the verse might just be your piano and vocals, and then you add your bass in the pre-chorus, and then your drums come in the chorus. So that naturally builds the tension and raises the dynamic level without changing volume necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that um, when you think of that, you might picture like everyone's on stage and the uh, the set starts and the piano and vocalist, the spotlight's on them and then the spotlight turns on and now the bass player jumps in. No, 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 no. It's not cheesy like that. Like that might be something that a rock band might do for fun when they right. have a big crowd that loves them and it works in that setting. But what what we're, we mean is more of a, a natural layering of those instruments coming mm-hmm. in. And you can do that without making it some cheesy, corny entrance kind of a thing. And it really will make a dynamic effect, especially if the players know what they're doing in those entrances to make them feel natural and to slide their way in nicely. Right. Exactly. Um, and then Matt, you put in here using crescendos and diminuendos. So basically what he means by that is, you know, you're starting off one volume. Okay. So like in pop music, you've, you guys have heard a build in pop music where the drummer goes, and then they go into a full beat or something. That's kind of what we mean by that. It's that's exactly what it is. It's just a kind of a cheesy way to do it, in my opinion. But it sure. works. People do it all the time, and people eat it up. People love it. I 
personally think it's a little bit cheesy to just do a da 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 da, you know, but whatever. Um, <laughs> and then diminuendo is gradually lowering your volume. So uh, creating a contour for your for your piece is really good if your soloist does this too, whether that's a trumpet player or a vocalist. You know, kind of as the pitch goes up, increase your volume a little bit so you create arc to your melodies and your phrases so that way it actually has some motion to it. It doesn't just feel stiff the whole time. It uh, makes it feel like you're putting some emotion and heart behind the song. Yeah, and I think the part of the key to it is that it's gradual and and natural, so you take your time with it. It's Mm -hmm. not too fast. Um, It's not also too slow because, like Tommy said, it sounds a bit cheesy. If you make too much of an effort with it and make it some very clear thing that you're doing and you call too much attention to it, it loses the actual effect. What you're doing with the crescendos and diminuendos is you're subconsciously controlling your audience's emotions within the music. Mm -hmm. And you want to have just a complete and utter handle on what they're hearing and feeling in the moment. And you can do it in such little ways in the little ways of emphasis through your dynamics that you just have a little bit of a wave as you go through. Right. And um, this works for soloists. Like if you're playing a solo piano piece or a solo guitar piece, you want to very naturally shift the dynamics. The only time that you want to be like the, the TV example of quiet to loud is when you are purposefully doing that, probably to give a giggle. I think a lot of big groups will do that, and it makes the audience sm- smile and laugh like a little bit because a couple symphony. people jump. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. It's just for fun, and but that's different from yeah. what this is. Yeah the the best experience I've ever had as far as a listening experience sitting there. Well, I don't know if I'd call this the best, but the best as far as dynamics is concerned for me was when I, I got to go to Chicago with Liberty's Jazz Band and we we were playing at a jazz festival and the Count Basie Orchestra was playing. So his his ghost band was playing. So we played, like, fr- I think it was Friday night we played and Saturday night his band was playing. So we get there and not everybody went, which I was shocked. I'm like, how the, like, what, we went all the way to Chicago to play for this and not everybody's going to come to go hear the Count Basie Orchestra? Like, what was wrong with you people? Anyways... <laughs> Especially because we got to go for free. I was like, what the heck? Um, the school paid for it. Anyway, so we, we got there and we I, I'm sitting there and they start playing and you know it's going great. All of a sudden they cut the volume down super quiet and then they blasted us really loud and I realized that I did something that I have never done before at another musical experience. When they cut their volume down and started playing quiet, I leaned forward. Mm-hmm. So like leaning into the music, like, oh my gosh, what was that? That's incredible. I was like, I was reaching for it, trying to listen to it. And then when they kicked off and started playing loud, I was back in my chair smiling and just like, just, you know, to have a song, a performance that makes you lean forward because their dynamic range and then lean backwards because their dynamic range is that great. I've never had another experience like that as far as dynamic range of a, of a song. It mm-hmm. was amazing. I don't even remember what song it was. I don't really care what song it was. That experience just blew me away. Yeah, that, and that's exactly what I mean. Of just having a complete control over your listeners, mm-hmm. that you can affect them in so many ways if you just manhandle that music. Don't let the music control you. Control the music. Control that wave. Think of it that you're exactly. on a little boat. You're sitting in a boat, and the song is that ocean, and you can uh, pull out the Jesus powers and control that ocean. Peace be still <laughs> or roaring tides, whatever. But anywho, I think the well, the last I mean, thing for that is that if you don't have good control or if you're just playing with a bunch of lazy, stinking, not-so-great dudes and uh you have a big old dynamic build and it's crescendoing and it's building to this big chorus and you 
know that something big is coming and then you get to the chorus and it sounds like it's going to be so big and then it's just the chorus yeah and i've had that it, experience that, it happens so much and it's terrible you have this big build that might even happen like everyone's into it but no one jumps in at the payoff everyone then just kind of lays back and plays weekly i i specifically put into our notes that it's weak sauce yeah yeah <laughs> You know, to me, like, that's very anticlimactic. It's, like, so not satisfying. It's, it's like you go to a five-star restaurant and you order something yeah, Big Mac. that, it, it, pretty much, yeah, you order their fancy pants uh, burger that has all this weird stuff and the the bun is supposed to be charcoal color and you're so excited because you've heard that Gordon Ramsay himself came through here and was like, this food is it's the tops or whatever. And then that sounded Australian. What the heck? I can do better than that. Whatever. Um, and then it comes out and like Tommy said, you get a Big Mac. They didn't, yeah. the, nothing's black. It's just a Big Mac. And you take a bite of it and you're just like, what in the name of, I paid like all this for that. For this? I waited 30 <laughs> minutes while they made this thing. And this is what I get. That's the same exact effect that a band gives you. And even like you as a performer, like if you're really into it and then your band just does not come through and this isn't even like a volume thing. It's the groove. It's, it's the feel. It's if they just, if they just let it fall apart right there and get too comfy, it kills the drive completely. It's not about the tempo. It's not really even about the volume. It's all about that feel and that passion in that moment. And if people because I think what happens is you have that big old build and everyone's into it, but then you get to the chorus or whatever part of the song that it's going into and it's a familiar home settled part of the song and they get comfy and they just settle into it and just play through it instead of working yeah. in the group with the music and playing out and having that control. Right. Yeah, I understand that feeling completely. The other thing, too, that happens a lot is the build is too long. And so your building is like, all right, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. And then the top of your build comes too early, and then you're playing at like the loudest that you're going to play and the most intense that you're going to play before you reach the most intense part of the song because you started too soon. Yep, now you got you're the hype train moving too fast. Paddle. Yeah, you can't figure out what to do anymore. Uh, there, there's one song that has been pretty popular in churches recently that I've heard that makes me feel like that. And it's not just like the way my church plays it. It's every church I've ever heard play, even the recording. The build starts in the middle of the bridge, and then it goes through, and then they do the bridge again after it's already. <laughs> and I'm like. What on earth is going on? It makes me feel like I'm missing out on something. Because, like, you know, you get this big volume build, and it's like the drummer's going ham or whatever, and then all of a sudden you do it again, and he's still going. I'm like, wait a second, there's no resolution to this. It's not that satisfying, like, ah, okay, we've made it, you know? It's like, wait, we're still climbing? I thought we already were here. It's like a kid saying, are we there yet, over and over and over again. It's like they think we're there, but we're not. (laughs) It was They're just, at the top of Everest and they keep trying to climb the clouds. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, I'm up here. Now I need to climb to the top of my flagpole that I just put. You know, it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. It's like, why are we still going? And and you know, like Matt, like what you said, Matt, you don't always have to just like increase your volume, like increase your rhythmic intensity, or you know, change, do something a little quicker, you know, or like if your drummer's playing, you know. Even if he just switches up, no, you know, just even if you go into a halftime feel, anything to keep that intensity level going will be more satisfying than if you just build it up and then just go back to what you're doing before. Usually, the way I would think about it is um, from a rhythm section perspective, it's doing whatever it takes to get everyone that's singing along to sing at the top of their lungs until their vocal cords snap, pretty much. So you're building up into a section and you want to create a feel that even if you just drop out and it's a breakdown and they're singing a cappello, then 
however you do it needs to feel like they're going to be singing as loud as they possibly can. Right. And that, and again, it's not about your volume. It's not about your singer's volume. It's about creating that passion and intensity that would get people singing along to feel that yeah. much intensity that they're just singing as loud as they can kind of a thing. And right. Um, even in instrumental music, remember the lead player is basically the singer. So whatever is playing that lead melody part is pretty much your singer. So same thing applies. It's just now you don't have a crowd that's actually singing along necessarily, but they still need to have that feeling of top of their lungs, adrenaline pumping. They are sweating their guts out because they're jumping up and down in excitement at the front of the stage kind of a thing. Even if you're just in a jazz club and it's a bunch of 90-year-old fossilized dudes that hmm. are remembering the good old days. They still need to feel that insane intensity. Well, you know what song is a really good example of that? Without So this song... Well, okay. So the song, We Will Rock You. So it's boom, ah. boom, ga, boom, boom, ga. That's all you have. And that is super, like people scream for that song. They sing that song. They belt it. That song gets so intense from just boom, boom, ga, boom. Just the simplest, most easiest beat in the world. But and oddly enough, I think part of that is because it doesn't even sound like a drummer. The drummer is playing. But you hear stomp, stomp, clap. That's yeah. what your ear even hears. And it makes you, it demands that you join in, that you right. stomp, stomp, clap too. And that when we will rock you and they're singing that, it demands that you sing along. It's mm-hmm. we will rock you, not I will rock you. <laughs> right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I. That's just one thing. Dynamics are so, so huge to making your music come to life. Mm-hmm. If you master those, you could play all, well, okay, not all wrong notes, but you could play a lot of wrong notes if you play good dynamics and people will still want to hear you play. Sure. It's pretty amazing. Um, the, the last two that we have kind of go together, uh, but they are different. So the first one is articulation. Uh, our articulation is the way that you attack the notes. I mean, do, do you have notes that are accented over the other ones? Do you have is everything smooth, so it's all legato and, you know, or do you have anything that's separated, staccato notes that are like, instead of da, 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 or they da, 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 da. They all make a difference. And the, the, the key to articulation, though, to make it good is to get everybody on the band playing the same thing and get your crap together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, if you've got one person playing legato, but everybody else is playing staccato, it sounds legato. It just sounds wrong, and there's no way, and your intensity is all gone. Plain old sloppy. Yeah, it, it just doesn't sound like you're doing anything. You're not. It doesn't sound like you're doing anything right because you're not doing anything right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Articulation between instruments that are playing together is the key to making a group sounding tight. Right. So it's if everyone plays staccato at the same time, then obviously that sounds tight because the notes are played tightly. So by definition, the but. In the legato parts, it's the same exact thing. If they attack the notes in the same exact way, even though they're different instruments, different notes, whatever, that's the key to everything feeling all tight and together. And obviously, though, that's like people that are playing the melody together and creating the harmony within that melodic context. It still matters also for the rhythm section that... Mm -hmm they're not playing against each other in their articulation. If the bass player is playing staccato stuff, then you have to make sure that you as a guitar player are playing something that complements that. Right. Which it could be something that's legato. It's just you want to make sure it sounds right with what they're doing. Right, definitely. Now, there are some situations where you purposely want to have somebody playing different than everybody else. So like Matt, have you heard of Chuck Manchone? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the flugel player. So he's got songs like children of Sanchez and that sort of thing. Well, when he started playing flugel, 
So he, he plays like Latin music. So you have these really fiery, intense rhythms that are normally played really staccato. Well, then Chuck Mangione gets up there and he puts his flugel up and all of a sudden he plays these beautiful legato sweet melodies over top of this really intense staccato feeling rhythm section. And it's awesome because it's purposefully done to to juxtapose each other. When you're doing it like that, it's incredible to do something different. But, you know, if he was playing that way and his drummer was playing legato, but the auxiliary percussionist and the bass player were playing staccato, then you're like, what is happening? <laughs> and if everybody's accenting different notes and it's not done on purpose, then it sounds weird. Like some songs like the song Computer, do you remember us playing that in big band, Matt? Uh, no, I don't, I think that might've been before me. Was it? Okay. It was, uh, we didn't play it very well. It was not <laughs> very good. That's because I wasn't playing it. Oh, of course. That That's exactly why it had nothing Obviously. to do with the fact that the rhythm section didn't play for like, we had like a 64 bar section of rest while the horns had us had a solo section. Whoa. And they didn't play it very well. Um, Ooh. wow. But that one what made that song was all the accents being different. So you would have, you know, a saxophone doing an accented note and then a trumpet and you'd be like, like pop, 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 pop. And you have accented pops all throughout the horn section, but it's not the same person doing two, two in a row. But you had no, you had accents very close to each other, just different instruments were doing it. So unless you're going for a certain effect, then you need to make sure your accents are together and everything. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, music is music. These are all suggestions for how to make your music better from what pe- other people have done. But if you have a vision for something, go ahead and try it and just see what happens. I mean, if you want your bass player to accent a note and then, uh, and then like your piano player to play everything super quiet, well, just see what happens. I mean, it might be a strange texture, but it might be genius. You never know. Right. But uh, the last thing is inflection. So, Inflection is very similar to articulation, but I feel like it's just a little bit more nuanced. Uh, so in, when when I was preparing for my senior recital, I played the song Jekyll and Hyde by Marcus Miller. And so I transcribed the, the bass line and the horn parts and everything. And I'll tell you, I had a really hard time notating it out. The mm-hmm. reason I had a hard time with it is because a lot of the stuff that was done was not really note choices and not really stuff that you could notate. It was just inflective key, inflective devices that just like add something to it, like a little bit of a scoop or a slide into it or something that is just like, wow, that is really good. Or like Marcus would, uh, would palm mute something and then pop one note, but still kind of have it palm muted. So you, it's, it's crazy how he would do it. And it just sounded so good, but it's super hard to transcribe because every little thing had some sort of inflective device on there. And that's what made the song so incredible. Mm. Like the song itself is, I mean, it's a good song, but it's not like blow you away. But the way he played it is what made you just kind of made me fall in love with it. So there are all sorts of ways to do it. Like uh, string players are using your hammer-ons, slides, palm mutes, that sort of thing. More importantly, though, should you be using it? The answer is no, then don't do it. (laughs) Keep your hands to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, these inflective devices are tools, you know, so they shouldn't be used all of the time. You got to make sure you use the right tool for the job. Like if you're trying to hang a picture and you need to put a nail on the wall, you don't want to go and grab a screwdriver. You don't want to hit the nail with your cat. Yeah, that might be kind of funny, but... (laughs) I guess it depends on how hard your cat's head is. <laughs> no. I mean, it's a cat, so. Don't use your phone as a hammer. That's stupid. <laughs> you know, you, you want to use the right tool for the job. So, like, there are ways to do it. Like, you have scoops and falls, uh, blue notes. Um, are you going outside the key? Are you playing things percussively? Or is it purposely sloppy? You got you to make sure all of that is intentional and not just something that happened just because it happened. You need to be in control of your instrument enough to not have not have those things happen by mistake. Right. They need to be because if they're if they happen by mistake and it sounds good, well, cool, but how are you going to repeat it? You know, you need to make sure that you actually have control 
ju- not just over your technique, but your mind and how you want to play the notes and how you want to attack them. Because it's not just about how it's not just about your technique, though. This is a lot to do with technique, but you have to make sure everything is just intentionally done to get the right effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spent a lot of time in uh, our improvisation classes just talking about inflection and how you know you might play a solo that like okay f- one guy who is a master of inflection is Louis Armstrong. I heard Wynton Marsalis talking one time, and Wynton Marsalis is a master in his own right, and he was talking about when he first got introduced to Louis Armstrong's playing, he tried to transcribe uh, West End Blues, I think it was. Mm. I'm pretty sure West End Blues was the first one he tried to do. And he played it note for note, and he was like, oh, well, that's easy. But then he tried to play it with the recording, and he was like, what the heck did I do? This is not the same, even though he's playing all the same notes and all the same rhythms. He just didn't have any of the inflection that made it sound like Lewis. So the inflection is what makes it sound like you, really makes your voice stand out. In the jazz world, you know, it's vital. You can't be have your own voice without having pro- good inflection. But even in the pop world, your inflective devices are super, super important. Uh, a good example in the pop world would be somebody like Beyonce. I mean, look at how she sings. She throws so many things in there that just, you know, you've heard people try to cover uh, songs like Single Ladies and that sort of thing, and it never sounds right, partially just because their voices aren't as good as Beyonce's. But also, the all the inflection that she does, all the little things that make her her, um, they're, they're really hard to imitate. So that's just something to, to consider there to kind of top off the icing on the cake. Mm-hmm. So... That's a lot of content for the last 10% of your playing. <laughs> Maybe we should have called this the extra 90%. Because <laughs> this yeah, is what really. makes music music. All the other that's stuff true. that we talked about, yeah, that, that stuff's important, but it's not musical. Scales in themselves are not musical, and triads are not musical in themselves, and rhythm is not musical in itself. But when you put all the pieces together, that's when you get something a beautiful piece of work. That's when you get some awesome art. Matt, do you have any uh, listening recommendations this week? I do indeed. I don't think that we've actually recommended him before. So I wanted to mention that one of, well, actually both of our favorites, honestly, would be Duke Ellington. And specifically, Mm. I would recommend that you listen to his arrangement of summertime and the reason that i would call that one out specifically um let me see on spotify it is on the album duke ellington presents dot 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 remastered 2014 so specifically the arrangement of summertime on there i only say it uh like that just because if you look up summertime and it's duke ellington there might be a couple different uh, recordings of it in different yeah, ways sure but this one specifically it really does emphasize this the effects of proper dynamics it's a very unique arrangement of summertime the feel isn't what you would expect there is a heck of a lot of power behind his orchestra and the arrangement the way the notes are played are absolutely gorgeous it's easily my favorite arrangement of summertime and i've never actually played it this way but mostly because i haven't been in a context where it would be possible you really do need a big old band with a lot of horns to pull this one off Mm. and um so definitely check that one out there's countless examples of these guys that have beautiful um, control over their dynamics but that's the one that really stood out in my mind first when we were talking about it that's kind of funny because the one that I was actually going to recommend was also Duke Ellington. Oh. But I was going to talk about Black, Brown, and Beige. Oh, yes. So that Indeed. Black, Brown, and Beige is different because it's not just an individual song. It's like it's one of his jazz opera things that he did. Yep. So he wrote two, right? I think it was two. Or he was in the process of writing the second one when he died. I can't remember. Um, but Yeah. <laughs> Um, he wrote that was in like the period where 
he was doing that and he was writing all the jazz suites and things like that. Yeah. He's really stepping up his game on what it means to compose jazz right. music. I, c- mostly because he decided he wasn't a jazz composer. He was a musician. He was exactly. a composer. Exactly. And so he wanted to take that type of music that he liked and put it on the big stage for everybody to listen to. and re- So people would realize and see jazz more than just being... Um, I mean, don't take this the wrong way, listeners. This is not how I feel, but more than just being black music because that's kind of how it was seen in that time. Mm. And so he wanted to make it something more than that because it wasn't just jazz to him. He hated the term jazz. It was music. That's what it was. Yeah, that's the whole purpose of black, brown, beige is I protest against that mindset. And racial tensions were high at the time too. And so Mm -hmm. this song or this, uh, this piece was very much uh a risk for him wasn't that the first time that music like this was played in madison square garden isn't that part of why it's such a big was it madison square garden or was it carnegie hall oh that might be it i don't know why i said madison square garden (laughs) um i'm pretty sure it was carnegie carnegie hall either way like this it was a big deal politically uh, of the racial movements of that time there's a lot of yeah. historical context around this piece besides the fact that it is a musical masterpiece. Exactly. It was uh, first performed January 23rd of 1943. Wow. Yeah. So at Carnegie Hall. So, yeah, and that's a good one to talk about all the little things that make music just fantastic because it's got the dynamics, it's got the forms that are just super interesting, it's got all the little inflected devices. So Duke Ellington really is a master of that, and he had his band was the perfect band for what he was going for. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll, so we'll add both of those to our uh, Spotify recommendations. Um, so, again, we just want to thank you guys again for listening to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. We hope that our content is helpful for you and helping you to be a better musician and be the best that you can be because that's all we're trying to do is be the best that we can be as musicians as people and everything so hopefully that rubs off a little bit on you guys uh and again remember our pod our podcasts are sponsored by you <laughs> thank you so we don't have ads in here because we don't want to distract from the content of us actually trying to help you so we do have a patreon page so it's patreon.com slash just the basics you can reach it. You can find it through our new website, justabasics.com. Uh, shout out to Mythic Design. My brother uh, built that amazing website for us. It's incredible. And so you can find our Patreon link through there. We're still running our limited time offer. So through June 30th, if you sign up uh, at at least a $5 tier or higher, we're going to send you some custom guitar picks with the Just the Basics logo on there. So you don't want to miss out on those because we're not going to we're not going to re-release those same guitar picks. So we want to keep them a limited time thing and get them out to just the people who subscribe to us. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So if you really like our show, please check out our Patreon page and support us if you feel the need to. If not, that's okay too. Just keep listening to us and share it with your friends. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes. That is actually super important iTunes, Spotify, wherever it is that you listen to us, lead us a review. It really does help as much as it seems like we're just begging for people to click buttons. It really does help because it changes the rankings and how people, how many people will find our podcast and so how many people we can actually help learn this content. So, mm-hmm. um, all right guys, well, thank you for tuning in and we'll see you guys next week. See ya. Mm-hmm.